Hey guys, today is a huge episode for me personally. Jimmy Aiken, who is today's guest, is not only one of the world's leading apologists, he works for Catholic Answers, but he also <clears throat> is the host of my favorite podcast. We cover a lot of different things. We talk about the future of Christianity, uh, Christian art, then we get into things like um, ghosts and Charles Manson and Thomas Aquinas' take on things like psychic abilities. So we cover a lot of different topics and, uh, and I hope that you really enjoy this episode. Without any further ado, here is my conversation with Jimmy Aiken. Hey man, how's it going? It's going okay. Um, I can't hear you super good. Let me see what I can do about that. There All we right. go. Oh, okay. It probably so, yeah, so helps I, if I talk into the mic. <laughs> I had you turned down way over here. I'm actually at my wife's um, workplace because the internet is faster here. Uh -huh. The last time I did a video interview, it was like cutting in and out a lot. Uh -huh. And, you know, talking like everything was fine. I didn't know until it was over that it actually kind of sucked. But anyway, I really appreciate you making time to do this. Um, yeah, no problem. I, Happy to be of service. Yeah. You work with Catholic Answers, right? Yeah. Um. So I guess we'll start with, I got my, my notes here. It is weird not being able to see you, but, um, but at least I have my notes here, I guess. Um, By I guess the way, we'll, this is an audio-only podcast, is that correct? Yes. Okay, so I'll send you the audio files. It's recording right now, and I'll send you the audio file after we're done. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, how did you, just tell me a little bit about your background. Obviously, I'm a huge fan. Before that, actually, <clears throat> sorry, I just had a bunch of coffee, too, so I'm all hyped up. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of your work with the mysterious world. And, mm -hmm. uh, I think in some ways it's a stronger apologetic than a straightforward apologetic, um, podcast or, or, or piece of, uh, writing, because in my opinion, it shows what a fully integrated, you know, Christianity looks like that you've taken your beliefs and you've fully integrated it into this thing that seems relatively unrelated and um so in that way i deeply appreciate that it kind of shows me like oh this is what this is what a really like strong christianity looks like in uh in a different uh context like you know every time i listen to a movie podcast or you know or all the different like video games or whatever usually they even though it seems like when i click on it oh this is just a movie podcast usually I, by the end, I feel like, yeah, but it's also a movie podcast that is like clearly in this sort of postmodern, you know, hyper left wing um, sort of uh, world. And so in that way, all of their assumptions come from that place and they sort of it's implicitly those things. And I think in a way, the things that are implicit uh, speak louder than the things we actually say, you know. Yeah. And, and so you're podcast in my opinion is a uh, is just a great piece of christian art um which is a really rare thing to see um and so um yeah i just i've gotten a huge amount out of it and i just have a lot of interest in that kind of stuff anyway but in particular usually christian art is uh not great and mm -hmm. not only is your podcast as good as a, you know some other podcast in that genre but i actually think that your um your faith and your sort of uh reason makes it i think it's actually better than its competitor because of your integration of beliefs not as good 
and certainly not worse. Um, and so, yeah, so it's meant a ton to me. Um, but thank you. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And so it really, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry, I'm still going on this, but it kind of makes me feel at home when I listen to it. Cause I love all that kind of stuff. I love stuff that is, um, kind of on the edge of what we understand and what we don't. And, um, so I'm real, you know, I'm just real interested in sort of esoteric things like that. And to have someone in your shoes, um, you know, talk about those things, um, you know, it's a really rare thing. Usually Christians only talk about, we only integrate our Christianity into what we see as the most important topics. We don't really integrate it into these, what we see as less important things. So I don't even know what they look like together. And so I really, it's really been uh, a place, it makes, you know, it kind of makes you feel at home listening to it. And, and that's been a beautiful thing. Um, well, th thank you. We we get a lot of positive feedback, in, including from non-Christian listeners, um, and it is a you know intentional uh, StarQuest's mission. StarQuest is the company that uh, the nonprofit that runs Mysterious World that sponsors it, and it has a mission of evangelizing by integrating faith and pop culture, and so Mysterious World is part of that strategy of reaching people and nurturing their faith and their reason and it is uh, it, it does have an evangelistic function it's like come for the mysteries stay for the faith <laughs> yeah yeah um so i guess before i talk any more about that what is your what's your background and how did you get into being a professional apologist so i uh i'm I was born in Texas and raised in Arkansas, and my family was Protestant. Um, my parents took me to Church of Christ until I was about six or seven, and then they stopped going. So after that, I was raised nominally Protestant. Um, I didn't really have exposure to uh, hardly any exposure to Catholics. Arkansas had very few Catholics at the time, and and. Um, in my new age, in my teenage years, I had a flirtation with the new age movement. But then when I was 20, I had a conversion to Christ and I began to study the Bible intensively and to study apologetics intensively. And, uh, and I, I realized this was what I wanted to do with my life, that I wanted to devote my life to the service of God's word. And initially I thought that was gonna be as a Protestant seminary professor. Right. Um, as I read through the Bible, I discovered passages in it that, uh, well, I guess there are sort of two things. Um, initially, as I read through the Bible, I discovered passages in it that just sounded really Catholic, you know, like, <laughs> whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. That sounds like confession, you know, or right. baptism now saves you which is, although that is believed by many Protestants in the evangelical circles that I was in, baptism mm -hmm. was understood just as a symbol, not as a means of saving grace. Right. And so I said to myself, well, I'm a baby Christian, I don't know a whole lot, so I'm going to put these verses on the shelf, and I'll come back to them and revisit them when I know more. And as part of learning more, this was the second thing, I realized that what church is in convenient driving distance or what church has a fun youth group, or what church has pastor I like, or music I like, or preaching I like. None of those things are good tests for theological truth. And so right. I, didn't, I didn't want to reflexively fall into a certain theology just because it was 
being taught at a church that was convenient for me. So right. what I did was I made a point of studying all different branches of Christianity and the different ways that the Christian faith was understood. So I studied Lutheranism, Methodism, Wesleyanism, Calvinism, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, all the different branches. And so that gave me a background in, you know, the diversity of Christian thought. And then um, then one day I was reading a book. It happened to be a Catholic book, but it had an extended quotation from Matthew 16 in it. And this is the famous, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church passage. And I had always said, based on the the reading that I had done and the studying that I had done, I'd always said, well, here Jesus is not saying that Peter is the rock on which he'll build his church, that he's saying they're two different things. And I would have arguments in favor of that position. I thought I could defend it well. But then, as I was reading this passage on this day, um, I noticed there were structural features in the text that were so obvious, they're right there even in English. And I realized these structural features demand that Peter be the rock. And so I said to myself, well, if Catholics are right about Peter being the rock, then that means he's in charge once Jesus ascends back to heaven. Mm. And so being in charge of the church in Jesus's absence is a good description of the office of the Pope. And so I said, well, it looks like Peter was a was the first pope. Now, whether there were any other popes, whether that was meant to be a continuing office, that was a separate question. But I said, if Catholics are right about that, then mm -hmm. I need to review all of the categories in systematic theology with an open mind. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I took the verses off the shelf and re-looked at them, and I spent about a year in grad school intensively studying uh you know, the uh, Catholic-Protestant differences, and ultimately I concluded that the Catholic faith was, uh, the Catholic understanding of the Christian faith was mm -hmm. biblical and that I needed to become a Catholic. Right. Just, uh, just to give you a sense, like, of those structural features I mentioned in the text of Matthew 16, Jesus, you know, famously says, who do men say that I am? And the apostles name some options, and he says, but who do you say I am? Right. And then uh, Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's the right answer. And in response, Jesus says three things to Peter. The first thing he says is, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And the second thing he says is, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the third thing he says is, whatever you bind in heaven shall be bound, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. He also says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. So um, that middle statement, you are Peter, I would have always pre previously said, well, okay, Jesus is saying, like, Peter, you're a little small stone, uh, the, but on the great big rock, of the revelation of me as the Messiah, that's what I'm going to build my church on. So I would have said Jesus is contrasting Peter and diminishing Peter in comparison to the rock the church is built on. Some people will say, like, it's not built on Peter, but on Peter's faith, the Christian, you know, mm -hmm. Christian teaching. Well, what I realized was if you look at the statement immediately before that, it's a blessing on Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. 
And if you look at the statement immediately after that middle one, it's also a blessing. I give you the keys to the kingdom. You know, if Jesus said that to me, I'd feel blessed. So, so <laughs> right. it, so if the statement before it's a blessing and the statement after it is a blessing, then that mm -hmm. it means in context, we should understand you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church also as a blessing on Peter. Right. And there are other structural features there too, but just to give you an example. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I ended up becoming a Catholic as a result. Um, that meant that not only did I have the background in general Christian apologetics that mm -hmm. I already had, because um, I was a philosophy major and so I was a Christian philosopher, um, but also I needed to go through all the areas of systematic theology to see whether the Catholic understanding of a particular matter was correct, and that ended up giving me a background also in Catholic apologetics specifically. Right. And so uh, at this point in time, <clears throat> my wife was dying uh, at age 27, very young, from colon cancer. And after she passed, I got in contact with Catholic Answers here in San Diego, and I auditioned for a job, and I've been here for 28 years now in the wow. job. That's amazing. Um, wow, that's a great story. And um, dream job, really. Um, yes, indeed. <laughs> The kind of thing that I would be like, I don't know that I would go to school to get that job because I feel like there are three of those jobs in the world. Yeah. Uh, it is it is kind of a, a, a unique position to be able to, <laughs> to, to work full time in apologetics and actually make a living. Yeah. So my next question is, what do you, what do you see as the future of the Christian American church in general? Because um, I think maybe the, the problem that Christianity has had, or one of the problems, and, and including Catholicism and maybe a lot of the corruption within Catholicism and, um, and Protestantism, I see them both as like two ends of the spectrum. So um, in the same way that a structure can become corrupt and an individual can be corrupt, sort of like communism and anarchism or something like that, that, you know, that we have, Christianity has sort of both kinds of corruption that um, in a way, we don't know how to win. Like when we're winning, then we don't know when we do have the power, let's say, then that's when it's tricky. Because when I see us going into a time where we have less and less power, uh -huh. and I see kind of less and less corrupt in many ways, because the people that are there love it more. And, and in that way, it's a sort of sweeter thing. But, um, but then you have the downside of the culture being run by, you know, someone else. Mm -hmm. And then, do run it like even a little bit more when I was a kid, I'm 27. Um, you know, the sort of uh, Christian worldview had more, a little bit more sway in the culture then, but that was also, I also think it had a lot more, it was a lot more corrupt. The evangelical church, let's say, was a lot more corrupt at that time because they had the power that the power and the corruption go together. And it's really hard to know how to have the power and not have the corruption. Um, but as we go into a future where people have no roots, where, you know, where families torn down, uh, you know, religion is torn down, people just sort of wander, young people especially, they feel like they aren't tied to anything. And, you know, I see this as the rise of, of the kind of um, racial essentialism or whatever is that, you know, tying into your family tree is not the ultimate meaning, but it's a lot more meaningful than nothing. And, um, and so anyway, what do you see as we go into a time where people are sort of increasingly lonely, 
and perhaps increasingly empty, you know, suicide rates are going up and stuff like that. What do you see in the, in the future of the church? Like, what do you think? Do you think it will grow or shrink? Do you think, um, you know, what do you think it will do right or wrong? Or, and we're all just shooting in the dark because it's the future, right? But mm -hmm. um, in just in your opinion, where do you see the American church going? So, it, as you say, it's it's really hard to predict, but there are broad societal trends that we can see playing out, and I, I broadly agree with your analysis. I think we're in for some rough times. Um, Pope Benedict XVI, for example, talked about the church in Europe in particular being smaller but more energetic and creative as mm -hmm. a result of being detached from and freed up from some of the concerns it had, you know, running the culture so to speak, in Europe. And I think the same thing's true here. Um, we have some very militantly anti-Christian ideas out there that we're going to have to deal with. And it's, you know, it's easy to look at that and, and kind of despair a little bit. But one of the things that's helpful coming from a Catholic perspective is realizing just how bad it's been in the past. Yeah. Because um, there, even though we have many challenges today and there are looming threats on the horizon, actually Christianity globally is in a pretty good place at the moment, very much so compared to, say, in the first century. In the first right. century, the world was just swallowed in pagan darkness, and mm -hmm. Christians were a tiny, tiny minority, and then they went through centuries of persecution. But they came out of the other side of that, having grown dramatically despite the persecution. And they went on to, you know, shape an entire civilization. And there have been ups and downs through all of that. There is no perfect period in history. There's no golden age this side of the Second Coming. And right. so... It's really can... like, you know, because I, I mm -hmm. often, like, well, it's either the church the way it is now or the like perfect picture I have in my head or whatever. And like, it's just, that would never be, you know, even if I was running it, it would probably be way worse than it is now. Not, not the perfect thing I have in my head, you know? Yeah. And I think it's really valuable for people just to hear you say that because of the depth of your, you know, historical knowledge. Um, you know, I think it's valuable, valuable for people just to hear that, um, you know, as bad as it may be or is going to be, um, that it has been worse. And and, and, and and also, I think it's important not to underestimate the Christian community, because the majority of people in this country are still identify as Christian, at least broadly. And, uh, and I don't see that changing dramatically. I mean, there may be more people who are agnostic or atheist or religiously unaffiliated, but um, it's re the, the really anti-Christian stuff is a minority. You know, it's most people are not hardcore, critical racial theory, anti-Christian, you know, people. Um, but and, like more dangerous than that, you know, maybe mm -hmm. like an atheist still cares about something being right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's possible to build bridges and appeal to the human decency, even of people who are not Christian. I mean, that's what happened in the first century when when Nero uh, in A.D. 64 and 65, tried to blame the Great Fire of Rome on the Christian community and said they were a bunch of arsonists, which mm -hmm. he was doing to deflect blame from himself because people ex suspected him. And then mm -hmm. he started persecuting Christians, and he would even, you know, 
set Christians on fire in his gardens to illuminate them at night. Um, so he was burning people at the stake. He killed St. Peter and St. Paul. And according to the Roman historian Tacitus, this actually stirred up sympathy for Christians, because even though the pagan Roman population was not Christian, they recognized that what was being done to Christians was unjust. And so even in situations where Christians are suffering for their faith, the basic decency that God has built into humanity, even though it's marred by original sin, you know, St. Paul talks in Romans about how even the pagans have consciences. Uh, the law of God is written on the hearts of men. Those consciences are still a resource that can be drawn upon, even though they're marred by sin. And also, Christians just need to realize that um, that the opposition is not as strong as we think it is, and we need to just stand up and be decent, loving people and say no to some of these things and be active in our culture and not just retreat behind church walls. Mm. That brings me perfectly to this sort of state of Christian art. And I think about, I read somewhere recently that you can judge the depth of a culture's spirituality by the art that it produces. So I think of going from, let's say like the Sistine Chapel or something to where it is now, to where it is in America, especially now. Mm -hmm. And that there's a, I see, and maybe this is an evangelical thing or like a Protestant thing, but there's sort of a, at least the way in the church that I grew up in, there's sort of like uh, unspoken like Gnosticism. Like we, mm-hmm. we, in many ways, we kind of have a separation of like we have like the reality where gravity is, and then we have like our Christian reality, and they don't really touch, mm. or, or they touch, but they aren't the same. That we don't force integration, you know. So, and this is the thing that causes a lot of deconstruction, and or, or did for me mm-hmm. when I was. Uh, when I was a teenager that, you know, when, the way that the church talked about, let's say something like evolution, I was like this, I've seen this before. I've seen this sort of like, la 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 la, it's like avoidance thing. This is like, um, this is like a weird thing where people have cognitive dissonance, you know, where the, the halves of their brain aren't together. And I also, I love the church and, and was really um, clear that I didn't want that leaving it was not the way out. That was not the way through. And so that put me in a real weird place where, you know, in the the way I grew up, I didn't even want to ask hard questions that I felt the pastor might not be able to answer out of, I didn't want to disrespect him by putting something in front of him that he couldn't answer. And I also knew that there was a love within the churches, even the ones that, you know, I felt were wonky in some ways that wasn't out there in the world. And, And I didn't want to lose that. Um, or the beauty of that, or or damage it in some way. Um, but I am, I happen to be one of those people where the pieces need to fit, you know. And so I think of our sort of a lot of Christian art today, um, and some of it is great, especially some of the music is great. But mm-hmm. I see the state of it as a reflection of the way that we've separated the two worlds. We separated heaven and earth, um, and we live in sort of a you know, like the reason Christian art, let's say Christian movies are typically bad movies on the standard of movies. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that say about our lack of rigor in general? That in general, that speaks to our breakdown of just like, put just like pushing every hard question to, to its 
end and just really like knowing the hills we die on and really having things as figured out as possible that we live in a in a sort of bubble in a lot of ways and it's so good in the bubble that we don't want to leave but then we we separate and we have this weird like oh that's without if we if you look under what we say you know we believe in gravity and all that stuff and we go to the hospital and take medicine that's based on you know evolution or whatever but then we have like our christian reality too and and we separate them in our brain and that caused like serious like pain for me mm-hmm. and i need them to be integrated and um yeah just just thoughts on that so um so i, I you have a, a really strong insight here there is a kind of separation that happens in a lot of uh, christians minds and it plays out in more than one field now you mentioned art but you also mentioned other things like science and evolution and things like that and within the christian tradition and i'm going to speak specifically from the catholic tradition because i know the most about it but mm-hmm. um but within the christian tradition there is a recognition of the need for integration between faith and reason this is something that um came particularly to the, i mean it's always been there you know because the the christian movement was born in an environment where there was an intellectual scene you know, mm-hmm. Greek philosophy was kind of the big thing, and that at the time included what we would call science. Um, mm-hmm. Science was not an independent discipline. At the time, it was considered natural philosophy, the philosophy of nature. And actually, mm-hmm. the term scientist didn't even come around until the 1800s. Until then, you had natural philosophers who were what we would consider scientists. And so you had... Um, Christians having to deal with philosophical concepts and scientific concepts, and they were open to those in many cases. In other cases, they weren't, but they were open to, you know, what is compatible with our faith and and what's not compatible. That was a question they had to wrestle with. Um, For example, uh, some early Christians, a few at least, did not believe the earth was round, but most of them did. Most of them were educated, and at least the, the church fathers, uh, you know, were, were bishops and stuff. They were educated. They were aware of the evidence that Egyptian and Greek um, thinkers had brought forward for showing that the earth was round, and they accepted it. That's why, for example, you'll see, uh, including in medieval Christendom and on churches, you'll see like a ball with a cross on top of it that the ball represents the earth and the cross on top of it represents the victory of the cross over the whole globe. So they were aware the earth is a globe. Um, Now, they didn't know everything about modern science, but they knew that. And then in the Middle Ages, uh, there was a rediscovery of, uh, of Greek philosophical writings, particularly Aristotle's writings. Uh, and and Aristotle was a genius. He was a phenomenal thinker. He wrote all kinds. He wrote on all or lectured on all kinds of different subjects, including many scientific ones. And in the Middle Ages, his writings, like in the 1200s, his writings were coming back into circulation. And so Christian philosophers and theologians were reading them and saying, what can we incorporate here? Now, not everything Aristotle wrote was compatible with the Christian faith. For example, he thought the world did not have a beginning 
whereas the Christian faith says, no, it did. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So they recognized that the Christian faith was not compatible with that point of Aristotelian teaching, but they didn't throw it all out. They said, mm -hmm. let's be critical here. This guy has genuine insights. We can learn something from this. And it's a matter of sorting. It's a matter of, of exercising critical thinking. It's like what St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now here he's talking specifically about prophecy. And he says, don't despise prophecy, do not quench the spirit, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. And that is the basic, even though he's applying it to prophecy in that context, that's the basic principle of critical thinking. Test everything and hold fast to what is good. And so you would have medieval uh, theologians like St. Thomas Aquinas mm -hmm. say we need to listen to what Aristotle has to say. We need to test it because it's not all going to be right, but we shouldn't just dismiss it either. We should test it and hold fast to what's good. And so he and other theologians of his movement would say we need to listen to both faith and reason. They're, they're integrated and should be integrated because, and we shouldn't be afraid of truths that come to us from reason because ultimately all truth is God's truth. Right. Like, what does that say about what we believe about God? Like, if there's something, and this going back to, you know, maybe the, the way I was raised that, and, and I don't want to reflect everything on the way I was raised. I just say this because maybe other people were raised this way. But there was a kind of sense that if you go out there in the world and, and hear their arguments, you'll never come back. And then no one ever said that and they never would. But there was a fear around anything not understood already. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, to me, it's a lot simpler than that. To me, if you believe that God, that Christianity is true, then you shouldn't be afraid of anything else. And yeah. if you are afraid of everything else, then you don't believe it's true. You can't have it both ways. Um, and, you know, that doesn't, obviously that doesn't mean we should go a million miles down every single uh, road. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really stay up reading, you know, Buddhism or stuff like mm -hmm. Buddhist or whatever. But a Apologists <laughs> sometimes have to, because we need to know how to interact with Buddhists. Right. It's just not everybody needs to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that shows the confidence in it. And, you know, the lack of that, um, you know, shows to me kind of a lack of confidence. And maybe it wasn't that way in a previous area. I think going back to what I was saying earlier, I actually think that, uh, you know, evangelicalism was so dominant culturally that we had so much power that we knew that we didn't short term. We didn't have to have the rigor that we were winning enough and we were sort of high off the winning enough that we didn't have the rigor because it was too much effort because we were already winning culturally. Mm. And so that power told you, eh, this, you know, just don't, don't worry about it. Just mm -hmm. if they say something you can't explain, just like throw a name at them or something like, mm -hmm. and, you know, because how it's hard not to do that when you have the power, you know, it's easy not to be corrupt when you don't. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting thought. I'd I'd want to think about it more, but there are definitely valid insights there. I mean, one of them is when you are on top, so to speak, you can get complacent. And when you do have power, it can be tempting to abuse it, you know, to get what you want. Um also the um in terms of name calling and stuff, because of original sin, we have an unhealthy tribalism where we want to just reject and denigrate and 
other people who are not part of our tribe. So if someone is proposing an idea that you don't like, the easy thing to do is just virtue signal and flash that, hey, they're not part of our tribe, dismiss them. Mm -hmm. um, but the constructive approach in the long term is to integrate faith and reason. St. John Paul II, for example, has a whole encyclical, that's a kind of letter the Pope sends out, uh, mm -hmm. called Fides et Ratio, which is Latin for faith and reason. And mm -hmm. in it, he compares faith and reason to the two wings that, like a bird, let us arise to the contemplation of God. So you want you don't just want looking at everything through faith without any reason, and you don't want to look at everything through just the lens of reason without any faith. They both have a role in helping us rise to God and understanding his truth. And that kind of gets us to the second point you were making, which is about art. Um, I, I very much agree that a lot of Christian art is terrible because it—and this is not just— not just evangelical. There's a lot of terrible Catholic art, too. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it is in part because people are kind of walled off in a, in, a, in a little ghetto, so to speak, a little Christian ghetto, and they're not interacting more broadly. Um, one of the things that is a big problem with Christian movies is that they—and Christian novels, too— is they try to be too evangelistic. Mm. Um, this is something Mark Twain, now he was not a Christian, but he was a good author. And in the 1800s, Mark Twain uh, said, to, in effect, a novel must never preach explicitly, but should constantly preach implicitly, because the author does have views and he wants to get them across and stuff, but it can't be overt because if you're too overt about it, it turns into a lecture, and it's no longer a piece of art. And that's one of the problems with most Christian movies, is they're so interested in getting across theological points that it interferes with the storytelling, and it interferes right. with the craft and it turn of I, storytelling, and it turns into a lecture, and people know that. Yeah, and then not only that, but the fact, like, the fact that the people making that film don't have don't see the art form high enough to me shows that they have separated God and earth. Like, mm -hmm. like if they were more integrated, they would view the art form in the way that it affects us as humans higher because they wouldn't see that as non-spiritual. They would see God in every good thing rather than, or, you know, or some shadow of him or whatever. I'm not trying to go down the pantheism thing or whatever, but, um, yeah. but you know, that if you say, who cares about reading like a bunch of books about wh what a good like movie is, let's just tell them what we wanted to say. To me, that says that you see, you just separated them too much. You don't see that every good thing, including a great movie that tells a great story that isn't a Christian movie like you don't see that as something that God could use, you know, mm -hmm. and we sort of like we make them really small. And this is another thing I wanted to talk to you about mm -hmm. that um, we often sort of make God uh, safe and then we don't want to worship him anymore because mm -hmm. more like a pet than mm -hmm. he is like something that you have any kind of awe for. 
And I know that we need to deeply like know his love and his sort of like kind side and all that. And we have like a real, I especially really struggle with that side to like feel, to feel that side. So I really do need that hammered into my head, but I can't lose the like hugeness. Otherwise, like I'm, I'm missing the whole thing. Yeah. Let me let me give you and I want to I want to touch on that in connection with God's mystery. Let me come back to that for just a second. I I wanted to also give you an example of what I consider Christian art done right rather mm-hmm. than just be critical of it. Sure. Um after my wife died, I was grieving. And mm-hmm. one of the ways I grieved was by listening to music and including Christian music. And a lot of Christian music was not great. You know, um, but I found two evangelical artists who I love as artists. One of them, one of them, uh, he's passed on now, but his name is Mark Hurd, H-E-A-R-D, I think. Maybe it's just H-E-R-D, but Mark Hurd. And the other is Billy Sprague. And they were both active in the 1990s uh, around the time my wife died. So their albums were easy to find, and they're still available in MP3s, and I highly recommend both of them. They're very different artists, but they're both really good. They're yeah. really good lyricists, they're really good musicians, and one of the things that they both have in common is their songs are not just praise and worship songs. They, instead of just, you know, praise and worship songs are great, and they belong in church, but praise and worship songs don't reflect the completeness of human experience. Right. And in particular, they don't, in a praise and worship song, you're probably not talking about having a tough time in your marriage or having a tough time in your job or grieving over a lost loved one. And what both Heard and Sprague did is they they would open up the subject matter of the songs to these other aspects of human experience. And even though they're very different, uh, Heard is more intellectual and literary, Sprague is more just enthusiastic and positive, but they both have a profound understanding of suffering in the Christian life. And they also, they don't mention Jesus all the time, every all the way through every single song. What they right. do is they allow, they allow the Christian faith to suffuse their song. So the Christian faith is there, but they're not constantly being explicit about it. For example, yeah. Mark has Mark Hurd has a song um uh in which it's the song is about free will and about the abuse of free will. It's called Nobody's Looking. And in the song he names all of these things you could do. You know, you could do this, you could do that, you could do this other thing, and nobody's looking but God. And and so he makes his point without putting God up front. He puts all these other things humans might be tempted to do up front, and then only yeah. mentions God briefly. And yeah. other songs, he's got a song called Awake in the Nighttime, which is about watching TV at night when you want to sleep and you can't. And that's a real part of human experience. Um, He has another song called House of Broken Dreams, which is about losing a loved one. And and Billy Sprague has similar things. And they're both wonderful, uh, wonderful lyricists and musicians. And they're, in my view, doing Christian art right by not constantly 
talking about God, yes, talk about God, but not constantly, and let your faith suffuse the wholeness of human experience. Right. Yeah, I think, I actually think there's quite a bit of good Christian music for whatever reason. I don't know why we're Mm -hmm. doing good over there. Not, maybe not as perfect as it could be, but overall, I think there are a lot of, of, a lot of good Christian music. I don't know if you know who Josh Garrels is. He's like a, anyway, I'll send that to you after this. uh, Yeah. just just for fun but i'm not as up on the current christian music scene <laughs> i gotcha i gotcha i think we're actually doing good over there i don't know why but thank uh-huh. god we um but yeah so um oh wanna... I, I wanted to talk about god's mystery though yeah this yeah. is this is something that um i think it, i think a lot of christians don't appreciate and this is true both of protestants and catholics i believe me, I see this on the Catholic side, where people are, they have certain conventional answers that they're used to and that are safe and that, you know, everybody respects and they don't want to challenge them too much. They don't want to think outside of the box. But as God points out in Scripture, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. God is infinite, and we're finite, and so God's mystery will always infinitely exceed, you know, go beyond whatever we can imagine. And so there, in my experience, studying matters carefully, there is a lot more room for mystery in the world. There's a lot more room for saying God can do something Mm-hmm. Than saying God can't do something, and about the finest mm-hmm. thing where um, I heard it just the other day, but I can't remember the the technical term. But there's something where um, Aquinas had kind of a system where he would talk about the things that God wasn't as a way to try to get closer in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, negative theology. Yep. Also, in turn, where you're where because God exceeds in every way every, anything we could think of. So it's not adequate to say God is good. That's not, it's true, but it's a limited truth. God is even more um, than, 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 than what we can imagine by the term good. And so one way of approaching the mystery of God is by specifying, well, he's not this. He's not like a creature in having these limits. And one of the things, um, going back, since you mentioned Aquinas, um, Aquinas understood and this is common in the history of Christian philosophy, but Aquinas understood God's omnipotence to mean God can do anything as long as it doesn't involve a logical contradiction. A logical contradiction is where the terms that are involved conflict with each other, like a married bachelor. You know, you can't be mm-hmm. both married and a bachelor. Or a four-sided triangle. You know, if it's got four sides, it's not a triangle. And so those don't represent married bachelors and four-sided triangles don't represent things that could really exist they're they're internally contradictory they're just word salad and so no god can't make married bachelors he could make a bachelor that then gets married but he can't make someone who's both married and a bachelor at the same time and he can't make four-sided triangles he can make triangles or he can make four-sided shapes but not one that's both mm-hmm. and so as long as you exclude the things that are logically contradictory, anything else God can make. Mm -hmm. And that has important implications when you're answering questions about God's mystery. Because, you know, people will come to me and say, well, could this happen? 
Well, mm-hmm. if it doesn't involve a logical contradiction, then God could bring it about. So yeah. we should we should be very hesitant to say God can't do something, and that means we need to be open to God doing things we wouldn't have imagined before. And there are examples in the Bible. You know, most Jewish people had never imagined God would become incarnate as a baby and die on a cross. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times we think that if, you know, if Jesus was hanging out with us, that he would just be like nagging us with these like annoying things telling us not to do that or not do this or whatever. In reality, I think he would constantly be doing something I didn't expect, you know what I mean? That he would like he, like invention, I think, is sort of like creation is sort of native to him in a way that mm-hmm. um, so than us. And, um, you know, I guess maybe the idea that God is good, but not safe. Um, like and, Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful uh, analogy. And Lewis really changed my life. Um, and um, what, that was one of the reasons that I went to him, because I've actually never read the, the Narnia books, uh-huh. but I I wanted someone whose left brain and right brain were integrated, you know, so there are a lot of genius like theologians that could never write a story that a little kid actually likes. And there are a lot of people that could write a great children's story that could never do what a theologian does. And so I love that he was able to integrate the emotion and the, and the reason and all that. And, um, and so I really was, was blessed by that. I actually had two comments I wanted to make. Yeah. One, um, I recently been going through an audiobook by Flannery O'Connor, and that is such mm-hmm. a dark story. And uh, uh-huh. and, and that some tends way, tends to be Flannery O'Connor. She can be <laughs> she can be pretty dark. <laughs> yeah, but I think in some ways we actually we sort of Christians have sort of an opening in the art world with heavy subject matter because we have an answer for heavier things that mm-hmm. someone without you know without a system of beliefs doesn't have anything have any answers but in a way i think there's an opening for that and and i would love to see a future where uh christian movies were basically you know i want to think of christianity as moral realism so that like a christian movie or a movie not a christian movie but a movie that took place within a christian framework would just be a movie with uh moral realism mm-hmm. and that um i like i and tell me what you think about this, because I don't know the sort of soundness of this. It's just something that I kind of came up with. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you hear a word enough times, you don't really hear it anymore. Right. And so I, um, something that, you know, that came into my mind a, a while ago was thinking of sin as exploitation, either of me or of someone else, and that um, all sin is exploitation and that all exploitation has a cost. So that let's say if a movie shows a really sinful thing and pretends it has no downside, then we're then we're losing the plot. Mm-hmm. And that uh, a movie that takes place in a Christian framework doesn't have to be one where nothing evil happens or nothing bad happens, but just where every act of sin, every act of exploitation has a cost because in real life it does. Um, and I think that's a yeah. valid insight. Now, people who sometimes of people of pious sensibilities will sometimes not kind of not look favorably on movies that um that depict sinful things happening but if 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 you can't depict sinful things happening in what you watch or what you read you know what you can't watch and read the bible the right. bible has tons of sinful things happening in it but it also has a moral structure 
that puts them in context. And uh, this, and consequently, that's that's all you need. You can show however bad a thing happening you want now in fiction. Now, it may not be to everybody's taste, but in principle, it's legitimate to depict evil happening because the Bible does as long as you put it in a moral context. And that doesn't necessarily mean you watch a movie and you and a person gets payback for every single right. little mistake they make. Right. But so as, long, as long as as long as they it's made clear what this person is doing is not the ideal, is not what they should be doing, that's enough. Right. Um that brings me on to the true crime thing. So mm-hmm. one what true this is like a much lighter question. I may be the only person that cares about the answer to this question. But what <laughs> what true crime podcast do you like just to listen to? And then I've seen obviously some of your recent episodes cover that. And I think it's done in a really tasteful way where it is, it's like full on that you do get um the real like reality, harsh reality of the story, but in but there are certain areas where you don't indulge the yeah. sort of Things. Right. We don't sensationalize it. Well, like recently we did a couple of episodes on the Son of Sam killings from the 1970s and eight people died as a result of that. And I talk about or there were eight attacks, I should say. And um, and I talk about the attacks, but I only state the bare facts. I do not go into gory details. I do not want to sensationalize it. And since I, since Mysterious World is a mystery solving show, all the only details that I give are the ones relevant to solving the mystery, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't go into lots of extraneous stuff. So I try to keep it very clinical. Um, but in terms of true crime podcasts, I don't have any true crime podcasts that I listen to regularly. Okay. Uh, I have certain podcasts that cover true crime that I will listen to. And one of them that I've listened to a number of episodes recently is a podcast called Most Notorious. Okay. And um, and so I've been listening to some episodes of that. Uh, there's also another one called Supernatural with Ashley Flowers that occasionally has some true crime in it, and I'll listen to that. Okay, um, there, okay uh-huh. so, so I've never heard it, but I assume it's about supernatural stuff. Like, What is that like? your shoes and your like you know your job and stuff like mm-hmm. are you like are you constantly hearing things that are totally off or something because well I, so, so it's in a way supernatural is somewhat close to mysterious world in that it considers a range of mysteries both natural and supernatural they put supernatural in the title but it actually covers a lot of natural mysteries too um, and then, unlike many podcasts, which just want to generate a sense of awe and imagine what if this is true. Yeah. This um, I, I keep cutting off. I'm sorry. Hmm? One thing I, I don't like in a true crime podcast is when they glorify the murderer because it helps the story. Like it helps the story to make the killer seem like this unstoppable, like apex predator, when in reality, it's someone that is more like a toddler inside. They more just want something now and they're going to do whatever to get it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that like, which is what it, a psychopath is like, yeah. <laughs> right? but that, that there's like an instinct when making that kind of story to make him seem like an unstoppable force or something because it helps the story, but it's not again, but it's not real. And it, and it's glorifying something that, you know, that really should just be, Mm-hmm. I don't know. 
I don't, I don't like when, when they're kind of raised up as these like anti, yeah. I don't know, cons or something like that. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. Let me give you an example of that. Um, and that's the Manson family. Uh, I've done a lot of study of the Manson family. Now, for people who may not be aware, who may be younger, uh, Charles Manson was a um, a guy back in the 1960s, and he built a, 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 a so-called family around him. This was during the hippie movement, and, and people were living in communal settings and stuff, and a lot of people were drifting. You know, they, they'd left home, they'd run away, they were into the drug culture, and everything and it and sex drugs and rock and roll was the big thing and so manson got a bunch of really vulnerable people around him mostly women but some men and they were called the family and in 1969 he decided it was time based in he he was um crazy and he decided that the thing to do was try to start a race war that that he called helter skelter and he thought the Beatles were sending him messages through their records, which is paranoid <laughs> schizophrenia. Um, but he thought the Beatles were telling him that uh, that based on the book of Revelation, there was this great race war called Helter Skelter coming. And, um, and it, once the race war happened, the Manson family would be, would be on top. They would mm. be, end up running society. And so he wanted to start this race war, and he decided the way to do it was by going into rich areas of Los Angeles and killing people horrifically, mm. and then trying to blame black people so that mm. black people would get the blame, and that would start the race war. And so they went and they killed uh, like eight people over the course of a couple of nights. And then they all got caught. Now, when I first started studying the Manson family, I've read a number of books about him and watched a number of documentaries. But when I started reading about him, I realized these people were never going to get away with this. They were always going to get caught because they were a bunch of idiots. You know, Mm -hmm. so like after they've killed the people in Los Angeles, they then bug out and they go to Death Valley. And they're going to hide. The idea is they're going to hide out in Death Valley in the bottomless pit, which they believed was located in Death Valley, um, while the race war happens. And then when it all blows over, they emerge triumphant. Well, when you move to Death Valley and you're on the run from the cops, you know what you don't do? Set fire to government equipment. Okay, that's just going to attract the attention of the cops if you're setting fire to government equipment in Death Valley. So there was no way these people were ever going to be able to continue their crime spree. Sin makes you stupid. And wow, was the Manson family stupid. And so um, looping this back to art, there is uh, a movie that uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino made called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is about a, a, a movie actor and his stuntman buddy. But it intersects with the Manson family story. It's a fictionalized version of what was happening in 1969 when the Manson family murders occurred. And it absolutely... Now, there are some things in this movie that are crude and that will not please pious sensibilities, so be aware of that. But it absolutely does not glorify the Manson family. Mm 
Right. Um, like at one point, the stuntman in the story visits the ranch where the Manson family is staying, and a, a, a guy who was a member of the Manson family named Clem, uh, who is mentally challenged, uh, tries to or like deflates the tires on the stuntman's car just to mess with him, and the stuntman beats him up. You know, and it and it totally dethrones the Manson family as these intimidating, unstoppable right. people. And in yeah. fact, in the in the climax of the movie, they get stopped in a rather dramatic way. And <laughs> and and this could have happened in real life, but the right. the point from an artistic point of view is it does not glamorize the evil of the Manson family. It reveals right. the pathetic aspects that were really there. Right. Right. Um, I have a few other questions, and I don't have yeah. any so I don't know how to get into them. Um, the mm -hmm. next one, I guess, would be just what is the sort of either your personal or the Catholic approach in general um, approach to like ghosts? Um, mm -hmm. And I say this because I think of ghosts as this thing that we like, I, this is maybe a stretch, but I think roughly 100% of people in some form kind of believe that, they're, that they exist in some form. That in the same way that I believe pretty much everyone has like a sort of sense that God is there or that something they can't control is there. Mm -hmm. But we don't, you know, we can't put a name on it. And um, I, I bring this up because one time I was at a friend's house at his uh, college dorm and I was woke up in the middle of the night. This is not something where I saw a shape or anything. I didn't see nothing. But I, uh, <laughs> I just felt like this real strong prompting on my sort of conscience of, I can't say that word, conscious of god saying like leave like leave now mm -hmm. and um it's only happened a few times in my life but it was like it woke me up out of sleep and it was and it was like a prompting to like go home like um and um anyway that guy was later arrested and stuff but mm. that like um that feeling that intuition that sort of uh there's something spiritual I mean, obviously, we wouldn't be talking about Christianity if we didn't believe in spirits, right? But um, there, just what is your take on the the sort of form that ghosts take? And I've I've, I've heard a lot of people say different things about them, and I certainly don't think that they're necessarily these like way that we've you know projected them in, in movies or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, but just I don't know. It's probably an, an ongoing mystery forever. But. So, what? so, so you, you mentioned ghosts, you also mentioned like intuitions, like get out of here now. And those are kind of related, but they're also separate. So if you want, I can address both of them. Okay. Um, in, in, in terms of ghosts, the way I would explain it is, well, okay, ghosts clearly exist because ghost is just another word for spirit. You know, mm -hmm. um, English has this double vocabulary because Anglo-Saxon is a Germanic language, but then the French who have a Romance language, conquered England in 1066. So English has two words for all kinds of things. Well, Geist is the German word for spirit, and Spiritus is the Latin word for spirit, and they mean the same thing. That's why you can either refer to the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. So since we have spirits that survive death, we have ghosts that survive death. Ghosts exist. The question is, do they ever appear or manifest in some way that the living can perceive them? Well, people could take different perspectives on that. However, from 1 Samuel 28, they can. Uh, because Saul, even though it's forbidden 
to go to a medium and use a medium. Saul is desperate to get some information, and God is not picking up the phone. So he says, well, I, I'm, I really need this information. God is not answering me, so I need to go to another person that could tell me. I'll call up the spirit of the prophet Samuel. And so he goes to the Witch of Endor, which is the basis of the character Endora on the old sitcom Bewitched. Um, and and he has the Witch of Endor call up the spirit of Samuel. Now, some people will look at this and say, oh, that can't be Samuel because God wouldn't do this. God wouldn't let this happen. That must be a demon. Problem is, that's not what the inspired author of Second of First Samuel says. The author of First Samuel says Saul knows it's Samuel, and he says things like, and then Samuel said... So the inspired author of Scripture is presenting this as Samuel is really here. That's also confirmed in the book of Sirach, which is in the Catholic Bible um, and the Eastern Orthodox Bible, where it talks about how Samuel prophesied even after his own death and rebuked the king. So, so God can allow this to happen. doesn't involve a logical contradiction. Right. And so then you have to say, well, what does the history yep. of Christian experience show? Well, there have been ghost reportings all the way down through Christian history. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas, for his part, uh, suggested that actually the three different types of souls can appear to us by God's permission. God could allow the saints in heaven to appear to us, and there are many reports of that in Christian history. You know, Mary or other saints or Jesus, even though he's got his body with him, he's not dead. Um, and married the same way, but other saints as well who don't have their bodies have been allowed to appear to Christians down through history. Um, that even happens in the in the Catholic and Orthodox Bible in Second Maccabees. Um, but uh, then there are Christians who are currently being purified and freed from the cons all of the disordered attachments they had in this world. Um, you know, most of us don't die pure, but we're gonna be pure in heaven because nothing impure gets into heaven. So that means between when we die impure and when we enter into heaven pure, we've got to be purified. The Catholic Church gives the name purgatory to that state. Pur it, purgation just means purification. And so it's the final stage of our sanctification where God purifies us. It may take time. It may happen in the twinkling of an eye. Church doesn't have a teaching on that. Right. But St. Thomas Aquinas would say those souls who are currently being purified can also uh, manifest to us and maybe indicate that they need our prayers, for example, to help, you know, make their purification a little easier. Mm -hmm. um, and then also Aquinas would say, does say, if God permits it, even a damned soul can appear if it's God's will, if it'll help the living in some way. So like maybe your Ebenezer Scrooge and Jacob Marley shows up one Christmas Eve and says, guess what? If you don't mend your ways, you're going to end up like me. You know, that's mm -hmm. the plot of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And Aquinas yeah. would say that can happen. And so, I, don't, I certainly don't want people coming away from this like, you know, scared that there's a ghost at the, at the foot of their bed or something, because I've heard... No. I, the, spooky little churches for yeah. people stuff like that and that's you know. the next thing i was going to address just because this is all possible doesn't mean or in my view possible doesn't right. mean it's common 
And it doesn't mean just because you have a weird feeling or there's something <laughs> weird going on that it's a ghost. It, right. could, it could, if it's a weird feeling, it could be your imagination. If, right. it, if, if it's un abnormally cold in this room, yeah. maybe there's a weird airflow pattern and the air conditioner's on and you didn't realize it. Or if there's banging in the night, maybe it's the house settling or bubbles <laughs> in the water pipes or any number of natural explanations. There's a lot about you know not living in fear it's definitely not you know it seems to be definitely not god's design that we live in a constant state of fear oh no jesus is explicit about that he says you know every day's got trouble enough of its own so don't worry trust god he's got your back you know saint peter says um you know, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you so yeah living in a constant state of fear is not what god wants us to do yeah, and I think, uh, you know, it's kind of two sides, the two opposite ends of the spectrum that on one end, we live in fear of the spirit or whatever, and, and went or ghosts or whatever. When I was a little kid, I was in some really weird, small sort of Pentecostal churches occasionally, and uh -huh. and there was just a lot of weird stuff. But um, I preached was, my first sermon in a Pentecostal church. <laughs> but very little reason, right? A lot of faith, and thank God for those the faith of those people, but very little reason. And there wasn't a lot of marrying of the two, but... Um, yeah, so, but it's important to mention these like more, uh, out there things mm -hmm. because I don't, because in our world today, in our materialist age, we, we just act as if there's nothing beyond what we could understand that we are the absolute top of the food chain and that there is nothing above us. And that even when we tell ourselves that even the people that, you know, believe that, that say they're atheists or whatever, that we all quietly know that that isn't true. And, and I recorded a different podcast today uh -huh. um, or that the one that came out today was, was about this, that a lot of our sort of neurosis and stuff of the modern world might be tied to the idea that we sort of tried to kill God and take his place. And then now as we are trying to sort of uh, steer the wheel that he's supposed to steer, we have like this impending doom and anxiety because we're in a position that we weren't made for. Um, but again, I have no segue for this. Okay. Um, Sock it to me, as they said back in the seventies. <laughs> um, what do you say to someone, to a young person, especially who's having a hard time, um, finding meaning in life? And, um, I just ask this because so many young people are very like disillusioned and sort of lost. Yeah. Very connection to the, any kind of history or religion or anything. They just, they're lost, you know? The first thing I would say is this happens to almost all of us. It is normal at this time of life to have angst and to have concerns and to have fears and to have a sense of loneliness or lack of meaning. All of this is very normal. And so don't feel like it's going to be this way forever. It's not. Things will get better. Um, as, as we, as we mature, as we start putting down roots, as we start, you know, moving out into the world, as we start getting established, it does get better. And part of it is because our bodies change. You know, we have different levels of different hormones at different times of life. And the early, the adolescent and early young adulthood period is the most stressful. Mm. After that, it gets a lot better. And there, there will be ups and downs in different times of life, you know, but the trend is positive. 
You know, the mm-hmm. older older people have higher levels of satisfaction in life, mm-hmm. and so you can look forward to that. It, it may not take it all away in the moment, but at least it can take the edge off of it to realize I will not always feel this way. It will get better. And then in terms of, uh, of doing things in the moment that can help, well, if it's serious, you know, getting some counseling can mm-hmm. help. Uh, getting, you know, th- sometimes uh, changes in diet and exercise can help. Um, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but I once heard uh, a medical person say or describe depression as exercise deficit disorder. You know? <laughs> um, if, if you're sitting around not, not moving at all, it does have a depressing effect. So do something. You know, go, go hiking, go climb a mountain. My favorite, go dancing. You know, you get you get motion and music at the same time. What's better than that? And socialization if you're dancing with other people. So um, so, you know, get moving. uh, Think about positive things, have things that engage your attention that you find interesting. Um, Go be with other people, even if it's just virtually. I mean, I know right now we've got covid and everything, Um, but, you know, go online. You know, talk to people you know, hang out together, phone people up. Um, there are lots of options, but engage with other people, engage with subjects you find interesting, engage with art you find interesting, music that's positive that will lift your spirits, um, and 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 of course, engage with your faith and realize that God loves you. And even though, as Saint Paul says, the trials of a righteous man are many. And he's quoting the Old Testament here. God will get us through them. So mm-hmm. God's got your back. As I mentioned one of my favorite quotes from St. Peter, you know, cast all your cares, or in some translations, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. And so turn them over to God and say, you know, I've been really been stewing about this, but I'm going to try to let go of it and focus on something else, and I'll let you take care of that. Hmm. How has—we're um, I re- we're going to wrap up here, but— um, yeah. How has reading great books like deepened your appreciation for life? And I, I say this because I am a young person. I don't have very much knowledge of history, but every time I have a little bit more, I see it like it, it deepens my enjoyment of everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is one of the ways um, for someone to uh, to sow in a short term way or, or long term, I guess to sow a little bit of meaning. And so I want to tie this in with another question, and that is, what are the books that changed your life, and what's the last book that you read that changed your life? Oh, boy. Um, so the book question is easier. Let me um, <laughs> remind me of, of the, so I don't forget the other question. But um, one, so obviously the Bible, duh. Yeah. Um, Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, the... Uh, there was a book that I read very early on after my conversion to Christ called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? by F.F. Bruce. And at the time, even though I was a Christian, I didn't have a lot of confidence in the Bible. And reading that book, even though today I think I could actually improve on it, it was <laughs> it was actually, I mean, you know, after 28 years as an apologist, I think I could make an even stronger case for trusting the Bible, or and the New Testament Documents in particular. But... Yeah. Um, but it 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 revolutionized things for me. Also, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis's *Mere Christianity* and C.S. Lewis's *Miracles*. 
Um, both of those books were pivotal for me early on. Um, in terms of life-changing books, those are the ones that most readily spring to mind. Okay. And then what's the last one? It doesn't have to like have be like a paradigm shift, but what's mm-hmm. just the one that really like stuck with you? Uh, Richard Baucom's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which is a really thorough, in-depth study of the Gospels and the eyewitness testimony, the evidence that we have that eyewitness testimony is behind them. Mm. It's it, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Among other things, he does things like he, he does a, uh, a survey of the names that were common in first century Jewish Palestine compared to names in other Jewish communities outside of Palestine. And mm. it turns out when you compare the frequency of the names, how often they occur in the New Testament to the names that we know from, say, literary and archaeological sources were common, they match. And this mm. is something that you wouldn't have happened by you couldn't have designed this because today we have census records where you can figure out what's the most common baby name. Right. They didn't back then. They didn't have any central registry of names you could go consult, and they didn't do statistics on what names were common. So um, if the gospel writers were making up the names of people, if this was all fiction, then they would be picking the wrong names. And the fact that they pick the right names that are consistent with the historical data we now have, it provides additional evidence that, no, this stuff is historically reliable. It is not just made up, because if they'd made it up, they would have got the names wrong. Um, Hmm. There are lots of other things. Um, The gospel writers, even though people today may not notice it until you think about it, they frequently signal us for who they're getting their information from. Um, a, a, it, there's a fancy word, it, tradent. A tradent is a person who passes on a tradition. And so the Gospels contain all these stories about Jesus, all these traditions about Jesus. Many of them came from eyewitnesses in the cases of, say, Matthew and John. But Mark and Luke are not, were not eyewitnesses of Jesus's ministry. Mark was a companion of Peter. Luke was a companion of Paul, although he also interviewed other people. Well, when you study the Gospels, especially Mark and Luke, they do things that tell you who they're getting this tradition about Jesus from. Mm-hmm. Uh, a fairly obvious example is is found in Luke's infancy narratives, in Luke 1 and 2. Um, we have these you know stories about Jesus and his birth and what happened before his birth. Um, and then twice uh, Luke says, and Mary stored all of these things in her heart. Well, he's just told you where he got this information. Why does he point out Mary remembered this stuff? It's to tell you how he got it. Either he interviewed Mary directly, or he interviewed someone who did interview Mary. But either way, he's telling you this information comes to us from Mary because she remembered it. And so there's just loads of fascinating insights in Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Baucom. Awesome. Um, do you want to tell people a little bit, just the sort of elevator pitch about the about your podcast, and then just any any final thoughts, I guess. 
Sure. So, uh, so uh, my name is Jimmy Aiken. Um, they can learn more about me at jimmyaiken.com. That's my personal website. The ministry I work for is called Catholic Answers. They can go to catholic.com for that. Um, I, I, what's that? That's a podcast as well, right? Yes, I was just going to say, um, I actually am on like at least four podcasts a week. Uh, Catholic Answers Live is a podcast that I'm on, and it's also available on YouTube. Um, I'm also on Secrets of Star Trek and Secrets of Doctor Who. And then the podcast I'm most famous for is Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. It has at least like 70,000 listeners per episode. It's a top 25 documentary podcast on in the U.S. on Apple Podcasts. And what we do is we cover mysteries. Um, some of the mysteries are natural. Some of them are supernatural. And we always look at them from the perspectives of faith and reason. So we cover things like ghosts. That was episode number one, although we've covered multiple ghost stories since then. Um, we cover Bigfoot. We cover aliens. We cover yeah, psychics. <laughs> we cover um, the Kennedy assassination. We cover true crime. Uh, we cover scientific mysteries, things that scientists haven't figured out yet. And in each episode, what we do is we, we tell the story, and people have actually been very complimentary about the storytelling technique we use on the show. Um, but we tell the story involved in the mystery, and then we look at it from the faith perspective and say, what would the Christian faith have to say about this? And then we look at it from the reason perspective and say, okay, we have these various proposals to explain the mystery. What does reason tell us? Can we narrow down these proposals to try to get at the truth? So we're not simply trying to build wonder and say, what if this is true? We're actually trying to find out, to the extent we can, what is true. And sometimes yeah. we come up with a single solution that seems to be the best one. Other times we can at least narrow it down somewhat to a few options. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't we don't try to leave the readers hanging with no closure. Right. I was super interested by the JFK episode because I listened to that the other day and I I knew that it was like a big story, but I didn't really I never really heard someone lay it all out. And I just thought that was super fascinating. But um yeah, this leaves me with one final question, much easier or like lighter question, I guess. Sure. What is the kind of mystery that like stays in your head the most? Like if you're just like cooking or something like what is the one like thing that comes back in your head over and over again if there's one the the one that the one that i currently um am thinking a lot about is psychic phenomena because hmm. um for two reasons and i'll give them to you from the faith perspective and the reason perspective <laughs> so um, the basic idea of what a psychic power is, is it's an ability that is built into human nature. So it, it's not supernatural. It is natural. It's built into human nature. But if psychic abilities exist, they're obviously weak because otherwise they would be considered normal abilities that everybody has, like right. vision and touch and hearing and things like that. Yeah. Um, so the idea is maybe psychic abilities are real, but, I mean, this is the proposal. I haven't evaluated it yet. The right. proposal is that maybe humans have these abilities to sense things, let's say, like precognition, sensing the future. Um, but they're weak, kind of like our sense of smell is weak. Right. You know, dogs have a lightning-sharp sense of smell, but humans don't. So, so, <clears throat> so maybe, like our weak sense of smell, we have other weak natural abilities 
to sense things that are not often recognized. Well, what mm-hmm. would we say about that from the faith and the reason perspective? The Bible doesn't address the question. It doesn't right. say we have no such abilities. It certainly does not say if we do, they're of the devil. It wouldn't say <laughs> that because if we've got them, it's because God built them into human nature. Right. Well, okay, so looking at it from a from not just from what the Bible says, but, well, what does Christian tradition say about this? Well, actually, if you go back to church fathers like St. Augustine or doctors of the church like St. Thomas Aquinas, they're open on this. Um, Both St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas thought humans do have weak natural abilities along these lines. Um, Mm -hmm. Both Augustine and Aquinas, for example, thought that humans have a weak natural ability to learn about the future, or what today we would call precognition. St. Thomas Aquinas called it—what's that? I have a question about that. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. That's okay. Have you ever had a situation where you where you knew a song was about to play and then it did? Because this has happened to me like 50 times over my lifetime, uh-huh. or, or something played. I knew for some reason it popped in my head, this is about to play. I haven't had that, but I have had other similar experiences. One of the things I've noticed, and I've talked about this on the radio before, but you know, on Catholic Answers Live, they have me do what are called open forums, mm-hmm. which means people can call and ask me about anything. Yeah. And so I have no idea before the show what I'm going to be asked about. And, and what I've discovered is that it, I have these, I frequently will find myself thinking or reading about an obscure topic within a day or two of when I get asked about it on the radio. Mm. And it's like, is God setting me up for answering this question, or what's going on here? Yeah. It could be supernatural. It could be a divine inspiration that I need to think about this. Or it could be a, a natural precognitive ability, it's, if it's not just random chance. I'm not ignoring that possibility. Right. Um, but... Aquinas would say that, okay, yes, humans can learn about the future through a weak natural ability that he called natural prophecy to distinguish it from the supernatural prophecy that God gives. And unlike supernatural prophecy, natural prophecy is not always right. It It only predicts the future probabilistically in his view. It gives you what probably will happen but may not. Sort of like looking through a dirty, a dirty window or something like that. Exactly. So from the faith perspective, I couldn't rule out that um, that psychic abilities exist. There's nothing in the Christian faith that says, God can't do this, this can't happen. You right. know, he, he hasn't told us that he's not going to put such abilities in our nature. And that means we have to look to the reason perspective to say, well, did he? You know, what evidence do we have from the reason perspective? Well, that's studied by modern parapsychology. And this, a bunch of studies have been done, and the evidence is not what you would expect. <laughs> um, back in the uh, back between the 1970s and the 1990s, the government ran a research program and a classified research program on a form of psychic perception called remote viewing. That lets you get the claim is it lets you get sensory impressions of distant targets, and they would use this. They actually had psychic spies working for the Defense Department to use it to spy on the Russians and the Chinese and intercept drug traffickers and find hostages and things like that. And this went on for twenty years, 
And when they, uh, in, in 1995, Congress mandated that the CIA do a study of, uh, of, of this phenomenon and reach a conclusion about it. So they hired two experts to oversee this study. One was the sometime president of the American, she's a statistics professor, and she was the, she's the sometime president of the American Statistical Association. So very high, highly qualified to look at the statistical data and say, is this beyond random chance or not? The other guy they hired was a psychologist. Now, her name is Jessica Utz. The second guy they hired was a skeptic named Ray Hyman, who was one of the founders of the American, uh, the, for the Center for uh, the Scientific Studies of Claims of the Paranormal, PSYCHOP. So this is a professional skeptic organization. He's one of the founders. And they, they looked at the data or a selection of the data from this program. And in their final report, Jessica Utz, the statistician, said this has been this is so far beyond chance the results they got that it is that psychic functioning has been demonstrated as well as anything else in any other field wow the skeptic ray hyman said there is an anomaly in the data i can't explain it i'm not convinced it's psychic but there needs to be more study here and i could change my mind if the results keep up in this direction mm. so you've got I mean, even the skeptics saying this, yeah. there's something in the data here. It has, it has, hang on just a second. It, um, it, I was not, I was surprised by that finding because I'd always heard that the scientific evidence is against all of this. Well, actually not so much. The evidence is much more ambiguous than you might think. And so between the faith and reason perspective, I've been devoting a good bit of thought to the issue of psychic functioning and could it be real? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And if you're listening to this and you think that uh, that we've gone off the deep end, good. That's what I wanted you to feel because, you know, we need to reinstate our ability to feel wonder and we need to um, get back to a place where there are things that are beyond our understanding, on the edge of our understanding and sort of take ourselves off the throne. And um, I think that your podcast in, in this sort of um, world of, of these kind of like anomalies and stuff is a great way to open that door, to open the door into saying there are things either on the edge of what we understand or way beyond what we understand. And that as a result of that, there is wonder in the world, there is mystery left in the world, and that there is a reason um, to not take ourselves as the ultimate uh, end. And yeah. um, um, I really appreciate you making the time to do this. I could literally talk to you forever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not uh, literally, but yeah. Oh, by the way, before we go, let me recommend a couple of episodes for people to check out of Mysterious World that touch on what we we're just talking about. Um, check out, I believe it's episodes 105 and 106 on Thomas Aquinas and the Occult. And we talk about his views, including about psychic powers, and we articulate the principles that he used to evaluate paranormal things um, and say, is this compatible with the Christian faith or not? So check out Thomas Aquinas and the Occult. It's a two-parter. Also, I believe it's episodes 102 and 103 on remote viewing, where I talk about the history of the government program. And in some later episodes, I talk to actual former government psychic spies. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate you um, making time to do this. And I encourage all of you to go check out 
um, his podcast. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for making time. This has been a, a really wonderful conversation. My pleasure, and God bless you and all your listeners. Thank you, sir. <laughs> okay. Hmm. So I'm going to end that.